from Thomas Edison State University. This is Edison Soundstage. Welcome to the President's Studio on Edison Soundstage. Listen as Thomas Edison President Meredith Hancock discusses wide-ranging topics with expert guests in areas like women in leadership, diversity and inclusion, planning for a 21st century workforce, building a better capital city, and everything in between from the perspective of a university president. Good morning, everyone. I'm Meredith Hancock, president of Thomas Edison State University. Today is a very exciting day for us at the university. It marks our official kickoff of our 50th anniversary with a year-long series of events that will build on Thomas Edison's rich history of academic and workforce innovation as we look forward to our next 50 years. Universities are meant to promote dialogue and encourage critical thinking. It's therefore appropriate that we officially launch our 50th celebration and our Edison speaker series today, December 1st, in honor of the day we moved from a college to a university in 2015. Today's topic is leveraging America's talent to meet the needs of an evolving workforce. This discussion has perhaps never been more complex. Just yesterday, I joined numerous business and legislative leaders at the NJBIA Forum Road to Recovery. In this full room full of state leaders and shakers, the labor market and talent development were clearly top of mind. It's also top of mind for Thomas Edison, as our adult students are actively competing in today's workforce while they simultaneously pursue their degrees. As a university that prides itself on the real-time professional success of our students, it's paramount that we lead these conversations as we plan for our next 50 years driving talent and economic development within and beyond New Jersey's borders. To keep us all on our toes, we're certainly in a unique labor environment right now with several seemingly contradictive indicators. Unemployment remains high with November unemployment rates just over 7% for New Jersey, yet with 300,000 unfilled positions, the state's employers clearly cannot get nor retain the skilled workforces they need. While New Jersey is arguably in worse shape than some other states, we're certainly not alone in this scenario. Meanwhile, a recent report from Citigroup estimates that US GDP lost $16 trillion due to discriminatory education, lending, and employment practices just between the years 2000 and 2020. Adding to this, McKinsey and others have put forth extensive data showing that racial and gender diverse teams can increase financial performance by upwards of 30%. Clearly, we're leaving tremendous opportunity and value on the table with our current practices. Finally, the value of a college degree is increasingly coming under scrutiny by legislators and employers. Though the College Board continues to show strong correlation between degree attainment, job earnings, and social positive indicators. Further, the pandemic certainly exposed the employment and financial vulnerability differences between degreed and non-degreed employees. Today's conversation is going to address the innovative ways employers and employees are addressing this conflict of discordant labor market and human capital realities. To lead us in this discussion, we have a panel of experts, which I'm quite honored to have join me today. Let me introduce. Dr. Lillian Lowry is Vice President of Student and Teacher Assessments at Educational Testing Services and Chair of the Carnegie Mellon Foundation for the Advancement of Teaching. Formerly, she served as a Maryland State Superintendent of Schools and Delaware Secretary of Education, in addition to holding appointments to the President's Advisory Council 
on financial capability for young Americans and the President's Board of Advisors on Historically Black Colleges and Universities. I'm excited Dr. Lowry can join us today and share her perspectives on the assessment of learning, teacher preparation, and what those mean to our future workforce. Maurice Jones was appointed 110, was appointed CEO of 110 in March of 2021. 110 is a coalition of leading chief executives and their companies who are coming together to upskill, hire, and promote 1 million Black Americans over the next 10 years who do not yet have a four-year degree. Prior to joining 110, Mr. Jones was the president of the Local Initiative Support Corporation, deputy secretary for the U.S. Department of Housing and Urban Development under President Obama, and Virginia Secretary of Commerce. Maurice's work is in the middle of our workforce pipeline as 110 challenges corporations to rethink how they assess and tend to talent development. Michelle Sikirka is the president and CEO of the New Jersey Business and Industry Association. She has been at the forefront of efforts to build more effective workforce development alliances in New Jersey between academia, business, and government. Prior to this role, she served as deputy commissioner of New Jersey Department of Environmental Protection, which followed her service as assistant commissioner for water resource management. A very passionate advocate for the success of New Jersey's business sector, I know Michelle will bring to life the challenges that employers currently face finding and retaining the right talent at the right time. Now that you know the tremendous brain capital we have with us this morning, I'm gonna go ahead and get us started. So a lot of recent conversation has been about the tight job market relative to finding the right talent. Michelle, let's start with you. What is your sense of why that is? Does it have to do with employee choice, skill development? What, what's driving all this? Well, uh, some of us would call it the perfect storm. Uh, we have so many different factors that are weighing in. So oftentimes people who know me when I speak, I talk about a three-legged stool. I'm gonna suggest there's probably five legs to this stool and it's more like a couch, okay? There are recent surveys that say that um, folks are stepping and waiting on the sidelines right now because they have more disposable income and that's because of federal stimulus programs. And they're really taking time to think about what they want to come back to relative to quality of life. You know, a lot of folks, if you think about the mass layoff, second leg of the stool, mass layoff at the peak of COVID, especially in New Jersey, we were shut down for so long. Um, people had time to reconsider uh, their stage in life and what they want and the type of job that they want uh, to come back to. You know, the third of this is the effect of remote work. Uh, certainly we have jobs that people cannot perform remotely, and yet we have all these jobs out there that are really now becoming hybrid and the ability to work remote. Um, and many people are looking at, hey, wait a minute, you know, I want one of those jobs where I can have more flexibility and be, be remote, not necessarily be at the front lines, you know, each and every day. One of the biggest triggers here, though, is uh, child care. And this is what concerns us uh, tremendously in that the child care crisis that we have right now, and that crisis is basically a workforce crisis in that industry, uh, and the access and affordability of child care uh, confounded on top of that, uh, is having a disproportionate and disparate impact on our working mothers. And for the first time in, in over three decades, we have the lowest labor participation rate right now of women in the workforce. We should be highly concerned about that, considering how hard we've worked over the last few decades in order to close the wage gap uh, and, and in order to increase, increase opportunities for women in the workforce. Um, and then the, the fifth and final stool of this is skills. 
the skills that people left, the jobs that people left are not the same jobs that people are coming back to. Uh, and this again is at the heart of it. We need to have a very focused and comprehensive strategy, holistic strategy on how we reskill and upskill New Jersey's workforce. And that's across all sectors. It's not just technology jobs, technologies in each and every job that we have today. Uh, and so we need to make investments and this is what we call on our policymakers to do. All right, any Maurice, Lillian, thoughts on that? Let me just add one thing to that, which is, look, a big piece of this is a self-inflicted wound. Um, we have barriers that we have uh, created uh, that is keeping talent out of jobs that they can do and do well right now. And I want to talk more about this uh, as we proceed today. But one of them is this um, this over-reliance, uh, this, this dependence in part on uh, a four-year degree requirement for jobs, whether it's related to the skills for those jobs or not, right? And the bottom line is 66% of the workforce does not have a four-year degree. And yet we have uh, 80 plus percent of the jobs that pay family sustaining wages on paper requiring a four-year degree, whether it's related to skills or not. So not focusing on skills is a systemic barrier that is blocking folks from doing work that they can do today. And so we have to, you know, my, my I used to have a coach who would say to me, first, it's about self-help. And with respect to self-help, we've got to eliminate a self-inflicted wound, a series of them that we're imposing on ourselves in the corporate sector and throughout the country that's keeping talent on the sideline at a time that we desperately need it. Um, and hopefully we can talk more about that, but I want to just add that to the discussion. Uh, I, I'll um, kind of tune in on the upskilling. One of the things that we heard from employers when I was at the state level uh, secretary or state superintendent was that they were spending money first, second year with their employees, just getting them prepared to do the job. And so what we've got to do better in K-12 is think about the curricula that we offer. Uh, we have the Pell Grants that usually look at what jobs are available in the area. And so we try to prepare students for those jobs in their immediate, but that's high school. So we've got to start as early as elementary school and many states have begun using almost coding as the fourth literacy. You know, there's reading, there's writing, there's arithmetic, and now coding. Uh, when I was in Maryland, we worked with an organization called code.org uh, to actually implement elementary school programs and high school computer science programs because as one of our panelists shared, while technology may not be the salient skill needed, it infiltrates every single job that we do now. As we know, we go to ATMs instead of tellers. We go to the checkout line that's automated instead of someone standing um, to, at a cash register. So if we ignore the fact that we've got to begin early on with our kids in K-12, making sure they understand the digitizing environment and how this can help with or without a four-year degree, um, them to become salient um, people working in the environment with a quality that will give them uh, a quality of life for their family and friends to be supportive. Uh, we're missing the boat. And K-12 is starting to really focus in on that. So as I would expect with this group of, of guests, 
we have our questions neatly laid out and they just jumped partially through each and every one of them. So now I'm trying to jump around on mine. And let me, let me jump a little bit on that with something you just said, Lillian. Um, as labor becomes more expensive and industry looks to drive productivity through other means, how do, we, how do current and future employees build job security and relevance? And for those of us who are about my age who need these people in the workforce for social security, this is a really, really critical question. How do we keep the labor market going? One of the things on which we really have to focus and concentrate is that we live in a dynamic environment. This is no longer our or our parents or our grandparents 30 years in the gold watch. I mean, these, these new kids are uh, excited about possibilities. They are risk takers. Um, and they're, as uh, Michelle, they're just not gonna settle into a job and be comfortable there. They're going to think about what it is they want to do. So I'll just start and then I'll get to the crux of the adult environment. One of the things that we're really doing well in K-12 is the dual uh, degree. The kids are coming out with high school diplomas and associate degrees um, because they are working in partnership with business. Um, for example, I think New York really kicked this off working with IBM, IBM pretty much assured students who, who finished their program in high school jobs, entry-level jobs with a certain level of salary. Um, so those students were coming out with a high school diploma and associate degree and a job. We've got to do more than that because what we have to do as people get into adulthood is infused in their thinking. This is dynamic. Things are going to change. We are ever evolving. Upskilling is not a one-time thing to get a particular job. It is something that we have to do constantly. We have to be lifelong learners, but the industry has to work with academia to make sure we understand as you started off, um, President Hancock, what do they need and how can we help? I'll just jump in and talk about the partnership between business and academia. I mean, that's at the forefront of much of what we do at NJBIA, in addition to our advocacy on behalf of the business community. But, you know, it is it is so important when I'm out and I'm speaking amongst my my members in the business community. I, I am saying to them, I'm literally pointing at them and saying, you need to be sitting at the center of the table right now because you're telling me that what we're delivering out of our K-12, K-16, you know, whatever uh, uh, phase it is, you're telling me they're coming in and they don't have what you need. And, and to your point, Lillian, right, I'm, I'm spending a year or two in money uh, with high rate of uh, turnover at the front line, uh, which is not productive, right? So now when we take business and we put them at the center of the table and we break down particularly the skill set, um, not just, you know, a 90,000 foot, but break it all the way down to really boots on the ground. When that person walks in with their hands, with their mind, with their mouth, what is it that they actually need to do to be effective? And then we translate that back into the curriculum and feed that back to academia and create those, those great partnerships. One more thing to this in terms of what the employee needs to be doing, uh, which I think is, what, is where you started. Look, um, I do think that we are moving more and more to a um, to a season where folks are trying to um, use proxies to determine what skills that employee is obtaining through uh, experiences in the workplace and out of the workplace. And so one of the things that employees have to get better at is translating their experience into skills. Uh, and so, Whereas 
we're used to creating a resume with credentials, right? And accomplishments. We need to be able to translate credentials, accomplishments, experiences into, hey, here's the skill I've learned from this experience. Here's the skill I've obtained. We need to translate resumes into skills uh, and skills-based resumes. And that's something that talent has to get better at doing. That's something that those of us who are in the business of advising and counseling uh, talent have to get better at helping them to do, because that's becoming more and more, I think, of the premium proxy. And I hope the premium proxy for people getting entry into living wage jobs and careers moving forward. And if I could just add one more thing to what Maurice just said, one of the things that is becoming more prevalent in the environment are digitized wallets where people can do exactly what he said. Um, their, their skill sets are there, they're portable, they can go anywhere and they can unpack in this job, these are the skills I learned or mastered. Um, and, and I think that is something um, that our colleges and universities need to attend to. Can I just add one more because um, this goes, we have students in high school and college, right, who have requirements for community service. And I see this all the time because the, uh, uh, an important skill set, it's, it's the hardcore skills, the technical, right, but the soft skills, the employability skills, communication, working as a team, um, self-directed, right? When you take a student who had a nonprofit uh, community experience and they led a team out in their community to do whatever it was, you know, do a food drive, um, you know, uh, build a home, whatever that was, they don't think about that as a skill, right? And so what they do on their resumes, they say, here's all my community service. And they say, I did X, Y, and Z with Boys and Girls Club. They never take the skill aspect of it and put it on top and said, led a team to deliver on a project in that particular way. And that's the idea, absolutely monetizing, right? Taking it and turning it into something that makes it to the top of your resume and not just a, hey, by the way, I did my hundred hours of community service down here uh, with these organizations. You know, and it's interesting to hear hear this conversation because um, one of the things we're doing with the university is we use the term resume relevant a lot. And we've started, and again, all of our students are in the workforce. So they're really tough consumers because they wanna make sure what they're learning pans out tomorrow you know, on the job. And so we've been looking a lot at what are they learning that's resume relevant. And, and, I, and I think Michelle to play on that, I, I think nothing says resume relevant by being able to lead a group of volunteers to successfully complete a mission. That in itself is a skill we all need. But one of the things I wanna get back a little bit, um, Maurice, with where you were going, when we go out and talk to employers, it depends on who we talk to for what we hear. So we talk to the hiring manager and they're pretty good with discrete skills. And they talk about skill development and this is what we need. Then if we talk to the CEO, the CEO tells us they don't have critical thinking, they don't have communication, they don't have succinct persuasion. Um, so they tell us a different story. And one of the things I really like about the trajectory of 110 is it seems to say, let's get you tucked in to a, a family sustaining job that has a ladder and let's then move you up. So how does the educational community work with employers to identify the discrete competencies, but also in that professional ladder? Because each employee is hoping that each floor they go up is not going to be the last floor they can they can hit. So how, how do educational institutions work with employers that way? And I know each of you may have thoughts on this. 
So it starts with the employer, right? We need the employer to be able to um, better articulate the actual skills that they're looking for in jobs, entry jobs, as well as jobs that are promotions and advancements, right? So that they can take that uh, translation uh, and share it with educational institutions. Uh, now, we need educational institutions and training enterprises and workforce development enterprises to uh, shape their offerings um, with those skills and demand in mind, right? It can't be divorced, right? And so we need educational institutions to be open to shaping their curricula, uh, et cetera, to satisfy those demands. So, but it starts with the, uh, with the employer. The second piece for me that the employer has to actually work on is not just focusing on how you get someone in the door, but how you actually create transparent career pathways for individuals from day one, so that those individuals actually know or have a real clear sense of the skills that they need to acquire and the experiences that they need to acquire along the way to position them for a pathway or several pathways that make sense. And oh, by the way, some of those skills and experiences will be on the job. Some of them will be upskilling and reskilling. And again, this is where the educational institutions come into play. Um, it has to be a really, really close partnership between um, employer, talent, educational enterprise. And right now, we don't have anything close to that. Um, and I say that with love because we can have it, but we haven't done it yet. It, it takes the investment of all three of those sectors in order to make this work. But what I love about 110 is I see that happening in front of our eyes. I also see how the ecosystem can be knit together for the benefit of all of those folks, for talent, for uh, employer, and for the educational enterprise. And that's what we're trying to um, boldly knit together now, this kind of ecosystem that, that has this interplay that's listening, that's adjusting, that's calling audibles um, and, um, and making us all better. Uh, but it starts with demand being able to articulate what it wants. If, if I could just uh, speak to what Maurice has shared, I had the opportunity to go to Sweden with a group of business people and um, other state commissioners with the Council of Chief State School Officers. Those are the people who run education departments in the states and territories. And we were there for about a week and we observed them. Um, you know, they have a leaving age in Europe, in Sweden and Germany. And what students do is they call it sniffing. They have this opportunity with their own voice in their own interests early in their academic career to determine what they want to do but they have an opportunity also to do apprenticeships for which they're paid uh, and internships 
to determine, oh, I thought I wanted to be an architect, but that means I'm gonna be sitting at this drafting table or at this computer doing this all day. I like to be with people. I don't wanna do that, let me try something else. So to Maurice's point, they get to try out what skills are needed, both social, emotional, uh, academic skills are needed to be in a job they think they want, but they get an opportunity to sniff or engage in that particular uh, environment to see if that's really what they want to do. And then when they leave, and you all know this, they either go to a college or university that is more career and technically, technically minded or focused or to an academic career track. But one thing that I liked about that, it gave the prospective employee, the person, a voice, uh, a loud voice in what he or she was most interested in where they wanted to really upskill to spend their time in their career. And there is always the point that all of us have made this morning, constant reskilling. It's not one and done. It is constant reskilling as the market changes, they pay attention to the market, they upskill, and that means sometimes they move tracks. I'd love, I'm loving hearing that one kid is doing that because in the United States, we have got to get better at listening to employee perspective, employee voice and uh, passions um, and training them to do something that they really love. So, so I'd love to share what we are working on um, because there are a lot of efforts out on this way and in partnership with the New Jersey Council of Community Colleges and with money from, from the state, uh, we are doing career pathways. Um, and we've identified about 12 different, you know, it's in, in four focused areas, but within that it comes, breaks out to about 12 different career pathways um, in order to break down uh, at the minute level, the type of skills, and then what the pathway through that is, not just get in the door once and done. It's this whole idea of lifelong learning, lifelong living, sustainable, sustainable jobs. Um, so we're very excited about that, that opportunity. We're actually doing uh, in the middle of stakeholder process on that right now. And this whole concept of experiential learning, our goal, and we've been working on this at BIA for a few years now, our goal is to have that um, miracle portal, if you will, where whoever you are in this spectrum of relationships that we're talking about, if you're the employer, if you're the student, or if you're the academic, you come into this portal and you can match what you're looking for for experiential learning and find that opportunity. Uh, some other states have some very um, robust programs that we are exploring. And again, we're talking with our, our you know, our, our government leaders on, on this as well. So there's a lot of great stuff in the hopper right now and a lot of people at a very, very big table working together on these comprehensive plans. I want to shift a little bit now. And I think it's interesting because we do see so we see so many threads of excitement on things that are happening, um, and and how we create that that clear pathway. Because I do think the unknown you know, is is the hardest thing on an employee, not understanding, especially for those just getting into the entry level of the workforce. Um, you know, one place we see this tremendously now is a shortage on nurses, the shortage on skilled healthcare. Yet the entry level positions into healthcare are anything but glamorous, and they're largely dead end. So um, at the university, I know that's a place we're focusing very carefully is how do we create pipelines? How do we partner with the health professions? How do we partner with our community colleges and the, um, and the state to help these people who come in as home health care aides, as um, CNAs, help them see pathways to the future so that they're willing to take these tougher, tougher jobs because they realize it's a move up. And right, we all need to play together uh, and we all need to work on that. Um, I want to shift a bit. Um, because I think all of us, as I know us, are pretty pragmatic people. So given all the studies that we see indicating diversity adds strength, 
And I think this is a broad definition of diversity. It adds strength in decision-making, it adds strength in skills portfolios, it adds strength in marketability of your company and of your product or your services. So how are employers getting more active in recognizing diversity as a strategic advantage? And how, how are they getting their arms around that? Yeah, they are leaning in in this area, um, Dr. Hancock, and they have to, they know they have to. Um, first of all, study after study shows, as you've said, the uh, incredible fact that diversity yields better ROI uh, in every sense of the word, right? Better decision-making around the table because you have more um, community of thought, uh, not just group think, right? But different people throwing out different things. You have more people um, representing the communities that you're serving, whether you're producing a product or a service, the reality is who is that going out to and what does that community want and need? And those who are creating the product or delivering the service should reflect the community that they're delivering that to, right? So we, we know that there's an absolute business case, not just the absolute you know, social imperative around this as well. Um, and so employers are realizing that they have to act with intent uh, all along the spectrum in order to make these changes happen. Now, let me be honest and say, so we have a, a DEI CEO roundtable, uh, and, and, and what we're doing with this group is allowing very transparent discussion because not everyone is in the same place on their, on their, on their paradigm and their journey toward DEI. Um, you have some folks who are dying to get there quickly and we say, it's gotta be right and organic. Don't just go checking boxes because it's not sustainable, right? You wanna have the right practices and procedures and policies, and, but it takes intention. It takes intention in recruiting, right? Uh, in how you write your job, your job description. Um, that drives who applies for your job and where you place that job description. And then inside, what are you doing to advance? How are you training at the frontline level to raise people up? And who needs an extra lift perhaps or some more education? And how are you mining that? Um, and how are you ensuring that you're providing equal opportunity for people to rise? And then this goes all the way up to the C-suite and the boardroom. Because what we see is we see better diversity at the frontline. We see it stagnating from middle level management to senior management to the C-suite and still to the boardroom. We, we, you know, strides have been made, uh, but we are, we are light years of where we need to be. And so it takes intentionality and it takes a good, good process that we stick to. And it has to be organic and real. Dr. Hancock, I, I think you are a shining example um, having an affiliation with the university board. What bothers me somewhat in this new environment is a lot of companies rushed out and hired VPs for DEI, which is great because you know there's a voice there, but it has to be broader than that. And, and Dr. Hancock has hired people to fill salient positions at the officer and leadership level beyond DEI. You know, uh, these are talented people with skills that they can bring into the in, in environment on many different things, uh, you know, whether it be um, student support, whether it be um, uh, building better programs that will yield more diversity, but with intentionality across the entire spectrum. So uh, I, I just compliment you, Dr. Hancock, for, for being really aware of if we're going to do this, we have to do exactly what Michelle described and make sure that there's opportunity for uh, people of color at every level not just brought in to do DEI because that becomes a check off the box. It comes to things to, to, okay, I've done that, so I'm good. And if we're really going to make strides and changes, people need to see what we've already talked about, those pathways to other places in the organization 
that gives them real voice and agency. I, I do want to say quickly, thank you for that, because we always, it's too important. You know, our employees are too important. So you've got to hire the best person. And you're right, if you're intentional about it and you're purposeful about it, you can find some great people out there that pull together a diverse workforce. And I tell you what, you can see it in the decision-making. I've had more opportunities where I alone could have probably stepped in a pretty big mud puddle and somebody else says, you know, wait a minute, think about that a little bit differently. And, and an open institution, an accessible institution for us, that's so critical to say, wow, we could have cut somebody off without even knowing it. Or in Maurice's words, we could have left somebody on the sidelines and not, not even known we were doing it. So it, you're, thank you, because it does add a lot of value. And I certainly, my leadership benefits from that team. So Maurice, I think you were getting ready to say something. Yes, look, the only thing, um, so I've been encouraged by the companies that have joined the 110 Coalition. Uh, when I look at the motivations uh, that they're bringing to the table uh, with respect to hiring and advancing Black talent, this is a explicitly intentional focus on Black talent without four-year degrees. Um, and we've had already 60 companies, and that number is growing, that have joined this um, unabashedly and uh, with commitment um, and, um, and with zeal and leadership buy-in. And what, you know, what I think these companies are seeing is, one, frankly, they're leaving talent on the side. Um, and so... They know that, they understand that, and they want help with um, help from peers and help from others uh, with accessing this talent. And also uh, they understand that it's, it's more than just accessing, they gotta create the culture in which that talent can thrive. Um, now, they are coming at this because they know they need to do it for the health and growth of the company. They also are frankly coming at it because Look, 2020 changed things. I don't care what anybody tells you. The notion that 2020 uh, was, you know, I remember seeing a interview with uh, Mr. George Floyd's six or seven year old daughter, where the commentator was saying, well, how do you, um, how do you feel about your father's death? And, and only from the mouth of a babe, right? She looked at that commentator and she said, my daddy changed the world. Well, her daddy did change the world. And the world is, we've got a moment where the world has stepped back or at least folks in this country have stepped back. And I wanna emphasize this, more people now understand that the notion that we are a land of opportunity is still a work in progress. And, the companies, to their credit, know that they have it in their, their interest to be a part of that work in progress and the country's best interest to be part of that work in progress. And they're stepping into it. Um, and so all of this stuff, I think, is, is motivating what you see happening now. And I'm a naive optimist. I'm feeling pretty doggone good about it. And we need to maximize this season. I'm trying to weave together a question with pieces that I've heard here because there, there's probably two different questions. One I want to go into earlier in the pipeline um, when we look at diversity and the talent that we're leaving 
on the sideline because I think we start leaving it on the sideline pretty dang early, pretty much from the womb. So I want to think about that, but that also ties me into Michelle's comments that we have fewer women in the workforce than we've had in the last 30 years. Meanwhile, I speak to a lot of employers who say, you know, we can't get diversity at the top. And we know you get diversity at the top by getting diversity in the right pipelines at the bottom. I think about um, a lot of these employers I speak to end up with shift work and things like that, right about the childbearing years. So you're gonna get the female side of diversity stepping out and saying, we can't, we can't hit the wickets that you've decided matter for leadership because we have to choose between childbearing and doing this. So, so we have this childcare part and I know some I know some organizations, some employers have started to pay, pay attention to that and saying, how, how do we do that? And I still think when we think childcare, the same way we think about a college education happening between the years of 18 and 21, I think we think of childcare happening between the hours of eight and five during the day and not hitting women and, and men who may need something else, working parents who may need something else to progress. So I wanna get thoughts on that a bit. And then I wanna come back to a different question about coaching and mentoring and sponsoring. I know Maurice, you had mentioned a coach, but first I'd like to talk about this whole interaction with people from the very beginning. How do we get, um, you know, this session yesterday, I know one of our legislators said he, he would love to have universal childcare from birth on, but how do we think about that? And, and there's a partnership there, obviously, I think between the parents, the employers, and perhaps the universities as we're looking at education, but, and then also the government. Well, well, I think with childcare, certainly a, a salient aspect of that is just getting qualified people given the uh, environment that I think it was Michelle uh, described when, when there are the, the federal funding to help support families through this difficult time uh, and allowing people a moment to step back and say, what do I really want to do? And how does my quality of life um, go moving forward? But it's also, we, we find, let's think about it economically, a lot of people were working to pay childcare. Even if they were there, it was so onerously expensive that they were actually working to pay childcare. And now that they have an option to step back and be more reflective about do I, am I really working just to do that? Very little revenue was left from that. Um, it still doesn't pay the bills, it pays for childcare. So if our employers and our government, um, who have both stepped up, I think, pretty well during this pandemic, want the robust economic development and growth that we all say that we want, childcare is going to have to be subsidized. I mean, not just for poor families um, who, who, don't, who live before the federal level of poverty, but even our middle-class families, it's tough um, and they can't do it alone. So uh, if we are going to practice what we preach, if we mean what we say, again, it's a confluence of all the entities coming together and say, how do we get our arms around this? How do we overcome this? We can't leave it for families to figure out on their own. 
I agree. And I, I think there, there are absolutely strategies to bring the business community to the table on this because I'll, I mean, I'll start by saying, look, we have a decimated business community right now um, coming, coming through COVID. I'm not going to say past COVID because we're not, we're not, we're, and we are where we are right now. Nobody's walking in tomorrow, flipping a switch and saying, Hey, you know, we've arrived, right. We're going to be in this, in this uh, economic climate for quite, quite some time. Slow and steady will win this race. I truly believe that, but you bring the business community to the table with, um, whether it be you know incentives or tax credits on their ability to play too, because they just and what I'm talking about I'm not talking about the big corporations right now because frankly you have big corporations who are providing childcare right I'm talking about our main street businesses I'm talking about the businesses that make New Jersey's economy hum every single day the ones we drive past you know on our way to school and work and otherwise and you know if we if we have a way to uh, include the employer by saying we will give you you know, tax credits if you would do this. So what we're doing is we're trying to neutralize the effect on their balance sheet at the end of the day without putting a new cost and mandate on them. Business cannot afford a single new mandate right now. They're doing the best they can. They're 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 paying, you know, higher wages, which Frankly, they're they're happy to do when they can afford it, but they're very concerned it's not sustainable. And we can talk about the impact that's going to have on inflation and otherwise, right? But again, I believe, and I'm a glass half full gal, Maurice. I'm just like you. I'm always optimistic and I'm super bullish on this state and our economy. But it's like if we don't get the right people around the table, have comprehensive discussions of of, of weaving these things together, uh, everybody is off on a block and tackle, and these things never come together properly. That's what we need take a little bit of a different uh, track, but hopefully on point, uh, because you were talking about getting diversity at the top, if I heard you correctly. Well, let me give you a data point um, that for me was quite intriguing and exciting. Um, so we've got 60 companies in the 110 coalition. Uh, we took a look at uh, around 25 of them, 25, 30. And we discovered, uh, I mean, now our goal is uh, hire in advance a million over 10 years, black talent without four-year degrees. Well, it turns out that just about 30 of the 60 companies already have within their walls over 850,000 black talent. 65% of them are in frontline jobs. Retention and advancement is a huge opportunity for partnership between companies and organizations that are in the reskilling and the upskilling. Changing the climate so folks are retaining and advancing talent that they already have within their walls is a huge opportunity for the country to make corporate America look more like America. We have get we. I am just salivating over this opportunity, just within the one ten coalition alone. But it is pervasive throughout the country, throughout the throughout the corporate America. We we must, with intention, invest in that talent and in the change that we need, the change management that we need within, and by the way, this is public sector and private sector. I could give you the same, same dynamics demographically in almost every public sector enterprise that I've worked in as well. People are getting stuck in frontline jobs and guess who's getting stuck there? People of color and others. We've got to do something about that. And we've got an opportunity to do it. So 
we need to be focused on the fact that we, and we know these folks, they're already in our walls working hard. We know them, we have relationships with them. We're not creating the climate within which they can advance. We gotta do something about it. All right, so Maurice, I'm now, my, my glass is half full. <laughs> You've inspired me with that because I know these companies you're dealing with and they're successful companies. So the proof is in the pudding. It's, uh, it's working out. I want to speak a little bit about, um, about coaching, sponsoring, mentoring. There's different words for it. Um, we had somebody at Thomas Edison lead a session once who spoke about the difference between mentoring and sponsoring. And when you show up for somebody, just providing advice. Um, you know, I've been on a, on a group looking at women in technology and why we see that going so far down. And there's been some conversation about mentoring. Um, one of the things though that I've come to realize is, you know, I, I mentor and coach a lot of people. And one of the things I think that's really important about a good mentor or coach is they have your back when you're not in the room. And I think that, you know, that's something to really be important about as a mentoring coach that you have that person's back when they're not in the room. But, but I've become aware of a couple of things. One, you know, I've got younger kids, they interview for jobs. And as I'm telling them how to interview, they repeatedly say, mom, I'm not interviewing for a job where somebody like you would be interviewing me. You've got it completely wrong about what I'm, what I'm coming across. And so I've learned actually that I need a mentor now the other direction. Um, you know, I need people around me who can translate to this workforce that I'm trying to attract and retain and excite. Um, so it's an, it's an interesting piece. I now find myself needing mentors and coaches in a different way than before. But how can we provide both types for those people who are, who are toward the top of their career? We can't hire, you know, I know Lillian, you said this isn't the same thing it was 30 years ago. This isn't your mom's, your dad's, your grandparents' labor force. We need to think and do differently. And then how can we provide people who have set their eyes? I'm mentoring somebody right now who every new accomplishment is more, farther than she thought she'd go, but nothing is stopping her. And, you know, we need both sides. So maybe it talks about how we build in a safe mentoring um, sponsorship environment that, that also doesn't pick favorites. You know, those are good. If I'm somebody who's always had great mentors, I've been lucky. I've known people who so I never had a mentor. So how do we build that in? Because um, a lot of people who would benefit from mentors don't know how to advocate to get one. So I'll get back to uh, Maurice's uh, salivating over the uh, work that these companies are doing uh, to really move forward with that 65%. Um, one of the things that I do is lead. Um, and, and I mentor the people I lead because people did it for me. Um, so we all know that we have amazing teams and they make sure that things that need to be done daily get done. What I started doing early on in my career was when I had to go before a CEO or a legislative panel or a governor or his team, I would take the people who own the work with me. Number one, that puts them in the room. That lets the C-suite see who these people are that actually do the work every day. I'm not there doing it every day. I'm certainly leading it and holding people accountable. They get to see how um, the leadership of the organization expectations are set, what kinds of questions they ask, what kinds of um, autonomy they are willing to give or not give. It is a win-win for both 
because it exposes those who are looking for pathways to the next level, to those who are making decisions. And it has nothing to do, uh, Dr. Hancock, like you mentioned, with, well, I like this person a lot. It has to do who owns the work, who gets it done every day, who makes this company do what this company or organization needs to do. Let's expose them to leadership so that they get to know the talent that they have and the talent gets to uh, have face time with them. I get so much feedback from the people I lead and it's a little different from the way most people lead because usually when you go into the C-suite, the officers are in the C-suite. It has been from the feedback, I get some of the best professional development people have ever had. And it has been from the other side, from top down. Thank you, Lily. And I knew that work was getting done. I never know who knew who owned it. So there are ways to mentor than the traditional, let's sit and talk about how you do these certain things. What do we do? to give that 65% exposure is the question I would ask. So I just wanna to add to that, that um, yeah, we talk a lot about, and I know the audience today is a very, very diverse one in terms of uh, students to teachers, to community, et cetera. And um, I, you know, as, as I was coming up, um, I did not have any type of formal mentoring. Uh, I just, I, I, I didn't know how to access it. I didn't know where it was. I, I just, it, you know, it wasn't, it wasn't something that was so at, at the forefront that I could go to someone and say, Hey, I, I want a mentor. Now I'm an attorney by trade. Right. And so what I, what I, what I learned over time is when I saw someone who um, I was really impressed by, or they did something, I said, wow, that's a leader I want to emulate. Right. I paid attention to the traits and characteristics of that person that was drawing my attention. And I tried to um, be a sponge and absorb that. And, and I would find it in many different people uh, and say, wow, that's a tr that person really got attention when they behaved or held themselves out in that particular way. How do I emulate that? How will I do that? And then, of course, relationship building. You know, as, a, as when I was a young professional, it was incumbent again upon me uh, to, to reach out and, 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 and build relationships too. Not as easy. So, you know, sometimes it's like, Hey, you're all of a sudden the, the, the sun is shining down on someone saying you're the, the chosen one to have this great mentoring opportunity. Other times it's going to take the student or the young professional to step out and say, um, I'm really looking for this or that, or, Hey, can you talk to me about this? I don't need a formal mentoring relationship, but can you share with me how you came to have this experience or otherwise? Let me, let me add um, just one thing to this. You know, what I've seen, um, uh, so there's a organization that we're partnering with that provides a um, mentor um, technology that matches folks as mentors in a company. Um, and it uses various algorithms to try to do that. Uh, what's really interesting about this is um, the mentor-mentee uh, relationships that are being uh, set up are mentor-mentor relationships where you've got more senior folks mentoring uh, folks who are on the front lines who are looking for advancement, but also the other way around. You've got the CEO being mentored by, uh, by a uh, person who is uh, on the front lines. Right where the where the frontline employee is the mentor, that to me is the way it needs to be done. Um, and then let me let me say something else. So, I, and this is personal. Um, I really think these um, mentor 
relationships, these navigator relationships, these coaching relationships are just crucial. I remember when I was a little younger and I you know, was born and raised by my grandparents in a little rural town of 1200. And I got a chance to work for a summer in an investment bank on Wall Street. The first time, practically the first time I'd gone to New York, much less I'd never worked on Wall Street. And I remember getting there and seeing all of these students who were from schools that, look, I was intimidated. There's no question, this was not a culture. This is not a world I had traveled. And so my, um, my strategy was, okay, I'm just gonna outwork them. I don't know what else to do. So I'm gonna be here earlier than they get here and I'll stay here later than they get here. And that's what I did. I was there, I was the first one there in the morning and the last one there in the evening. Well, one evening, my mentor, they had assigned a mentor to me, came to my office. He knew I'd be the only one there and he, opens and closes the door and he goes to me, how are you doing? And I looked at him and I said, I suspect you're gonna tell. And I sat and I sat down and he sat down and he looked at me, he goes, well, he goes, your work is the best of anybody we have in the summer class. He says, you work harder than everybody. He goes, people love you. He said, and he, you could see him trying to figure out how to navigate this discussion. But he looks at me and he says, there's one thing and I said what's that he goes we don't wear short sleeve shirts on Wall Street and I had on my best Sunday outfit I had a shirt with a collar with buttons and it was short sleeve because where I was from I wore that shirt to church my grandmother inspected that shirt I didn't know you didn't wear short sleeve shirts on Wall Street, but he had the love to pull me aside to tell me that. And it was ultimately the reason why I ended up getting an offer from this investment firm, because my work was superb, but I didn't know the ways of Wall Street. Things like that, People say that's at the margins. You win games at the margins. Two points and four points. This won the game for them. So these relationships are critical. I'll leave it at that. Well, I, I appreciate this because I really, I'm such a believer that whether you, whether it's sponsoring, whether it's mentoring, whether it's coaching, it happens, and I, and I love the line on the margins, it happens in the smallest of ways it happens, you know, normally when it happens in a big way, it's called performance feedback. Um, you know, the, it's, it's the iterative ways that get people that, that you may not have known, Maurice, that everything was perfect and you were busting your tail, but there was a piece of you, you just couldn't even play in the game because of some little fact you didn't know. And these days it could be completely different. I don't know what Wall Street is today, but at the that time that mattered. So I, being somebody who does appreciate mentors, coaches, sponsors, I'm gonna take advantage of having you all on the call. And as we wrap up our hour of this fascinating discussion, I'm gonna ask for a lightning round. And I'm gonna ask you each for a couple words based on our conversation today, what should I as a leader take away as a call to action for Thomas Edison State University? 
I'll just start. I mean, my, my words of the last two years have been lean in. Um, lean in, have your ear to the boots on the ground. Um, observe that we are in a space that is different than we've ever been before. And it requires an awful lot of adaptation on behalf of all of us. And that includes those of us who are at or near the top as well, right? We got to meet our workforce uh, where they're at as best as we can. Uh, they have a responsibility to come and meet us some way too. Uh, but the rules of the game have changed significantly. We need to be aware of that. I, I will follow up by using a word that has been used many times already today, and it's intentionality. I mean, what is it that you intend to do to look at um, equity, uh, diversity, inclusion, and giving everybody an opportunity, and then be intentional about how you do that? And, and I think, Dr. Hancock, you're on, on your way to being very intentional about the work at TES. Yeah, let me second that emotion. I thank you all, Dr. Hancock, for what you're doing in your partnership with 110. I'll use a sports analogy. Do not play small ball. We have a huge opportunity right now to really help talent get on a pathway to sustainable living wage jobs and careers. We've got the country realizing that we got to do more about this. And what we need is a team effort. We need we need employers, we need um, educational enterprises, we need talent, we need wraparound support, we need philanthropy, we need folks thinking big and bold. We don't need small goals at this moment. And so I appreciate y'all's partnership with 110 in that regard. Okay, well, I, thank you all, I wrote all of those down. Um, what I will do to get three brains to think about my future and, and get my own little think tank there. Uh, thank you for a wonderful conversation. It's certainly been inspiring as expected. The first question was on script after that. Uh, we played where it went and I think really delved in. And I'm going to say, I leave this conversation not ignorant of the challenges. I feel very aware of the challenges but I leave it glass half full. I, I do, I think we have a time, I think we have a moment. I'm not proud of everything that's brought that time and moment around, but I think we have a time and a moment now that to make some lasting change and to stay collectively intentional about that. Um, I also think it's an incredibly exciting time. As Michelle said, the game has changed. The employers don't, don't hold all the cards anymore. I think it's an exciting time to look at where we're going um, in, in our workforce development, in our talent development, in our economic development. So, so thank you all. I appreciate uh, your time and I appreciate all the folks who have attended and listened in on this. And I wish everyone a great day.